0: Today we're going to be continuing in First Thessalonians chapter 4. Uh, we've been going through this um, letter uh, that Paul has written as he's trying to encourage the, the brothers and sisters in Thessalonica who, um, whom he had to leave and he sent back Timothy to encourage them and he's reminding them of things that he's taught them. And so here we continue in, in uh, chapter 4 and if you'd stand for the reading of God's word we're going to be reading the first two verses and then we'll Sit down and continue through the text. First Thessalonians chapter 4 says, Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. Please be seated. So Paul is, is continuing in this and he's kind of reminding the the Thessalonians that they're family. He calls them brothers. Now, brothers is 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 a is kind of a a, a broad term. It's not it doesn't mean like He's excluding the women from this, but he's calling them Adolphi. It's actually where the word Philadelphia comes from—the love of love of brother or brotherly love—and what he—it's a term of affection. The fact that some people who have no um, ethnic or uh, you know uh, cultural affinity that they didn't grow up together. Uh, they weren't part of the same tribe or anything else. They've been brought in. They be, become a nation together. They become family. In fact, this was one of the things I think I, I mentioned to you before in a sermon that uh, when early Christians were interrogated by the Romans, they would ask, well, what what tribe are you from? What ethnos? What group? And they'd say, I'm a Christian. They're like, no, I didn't ask you what you believe. I asked you to what, what tribe you're from and in part this is one of the reasons why the christians were so odd is because they broke from some of those and it seems it seems small to us when christ says that unless a person is able to hate father and mother or all of those kind of normal social relationships to follow him that he's not worthy to be called a disciple because Christ brings us definitively from, into a new community, a new kingdom. And sometimes the people that we have natural affinity to, we still love them, we're still part of them. But we, as we're in this new kingdom, unless they're with us, the tightest bonds that we have, the most, the, the most loving bonds that a Christian has are with the church of Christ, the, the people they're going to be spending eternity with. And what he's trying to remind them of as he's establishing them in that is that he, um, he wants them to, uh, to, that the word they received you, um, that they, he wants to, them to walk in a way to please God. Now, this is one of those things where if you get the equation wrong, you can really kind of, um, you can really get the, the, the gospel upside down where it seems like the word of God or, or the gospel or, or what um, Christ has commanded is all a set of rules that you're following. And if you follow those rules, then you are pleasing to God. And therefore he says, I'd like you come hang out with me because you do all these rules. Where the, what what the, the, the gospel is, is that he takes people who are dead in sins and trespasses, uh, rebels against him, by nature objects of God's wrath, which we read in the scripture verses that we talked to before, and he saves them and redeems them into a family, and, and then it's sort of like, now, because you're family, live like you're part of the family, Let's, let's talk about what it looks like to be part of the family of God. And I think we can all relate to this, maybe less so as the culture becomes less and less about like, it's almost, it's almost like against our cultural expectations to say, well, my family would be ashamed, like I, I would be shaming my family if I did that. There are cultures that have that kind of pressure, that that sense of like, hey, if I do this, this is going to bring a lot of a lot of shame. Like I have, I have the last name Lino, for instance. And like, if I do this, then every Lino is going to say, hey man, you're bringing a bad, you're bringing a bad rap on our name. Well, that's actually true. That's an actual, a, a good thing to have in the Christian life to say every time you do something, you're going forward with, with a last name Christian, so to speak, and you're representing Christ in the things that you do. Now that shouldn't be your prime, that shouldn't be your only motivation to think like, I shouldn't do this because it's going to bring shame, but I shouldn't do this also because I love Christ, I love the people of God, and it should be something that's controlling us to say, there are other things that are enticing to me or tempting to me, and and sometimes it may be the very stop, it may be the very speed bump you need to say, I'm going to bring shame upon myself and upon the Christian name if I do this. And there's, there's, a, good, there's a good sense of restraint that comes from that. But, but the point is is that as we're established in Christ more and more, we should be, there should be an expectation that our former life that knew only slavery to sin and knew only um, things that we did according to the flesh— should continue to fall off and the things that are, attend to obedience to God should be more and more. We should be increasing in love, increasing in obedience, and, and so that we, um, that we do the things that Christ has instructed us through his apostles. So then he continues in verses 3 to 8. He says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that that no one transgress and wrong his brother in, in 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 this matter because the Lord is an avenger in all these things. As we told you before, and so, and I'm sorry, told you before and solemnly warned you for god has not called you for impurity but in holiness therefore whoever discharges that i'm sorry whoever um, disregards this disregards not not man but god who gives his holy spirit to you now this is kind of a this is an uncomfortable topic in one sense but it's so pervasive that it's impossible not to talk about um, you know, I thought about how to express this. Um, I think uh, uh, Karen turned or saw one of her kids spacing out the other day and, and or at a sermon and she, and, uh, she asked him what 's going on he, he, she, and he said mom i can 't understand half the words mr. Leno is saying so, but then she said that 's good because you 're kind of raising his vocabulary, but I need to think about the things that um, to make sure that the kids are paying attention, but I also want to make sure that they're part of that is that they're being exposed to words and that they're, they're learning. But in this case, it's kind of good to at least try and talk around it a little bit so that you guys can understand it and you know not to scandalize things. But the fact of the matter is, is that people think, it's, it's kind of almost ironic um, in one sense, is that sometimes it seems like uh, the topic of, Sexual impurity and that sort of thing comes up all the time, and that's because, frankly, it comes up all the time. Like it's so pervasive, you can't you can't not navigate this life without dealing with it. And and so the the, the interesting thing is is because the culture itself is permeated with this, and they're doing they're they're they're, they're almost doing it in a, such a way where it's almost. It's like natural or, or second nature. They don't even think one way. Or, they don't even they don't even give it a consideration. That when Christians say we not we ought not to act like this, they they that the the the, uh, the reflective thing is like to Christians. It's like all you guys ever do is talk about sex. It's like well. Isn't that ironic that it actually, you guys, that's all the culture is obsessed about, and then we're trying to navigate a life of holiness in accordance with that, but in one sense, the Christians are the ones that get a rap for that. I was actually thinking about this, that, um, you know, for those of you who are younger than me, which is a preponderance of the people here, I can think of maybe probably like three or four people who are older than me, and that's about it, but... Um, Maybe five. I can't see all your faces. But the point is, um, the, uh, those who are older like me can appreciate the fact that it's always been there. It's always been a temptation. But a lot of stuff now is way more accessible than it used to be, in kind of like it, there, there used to be, like all sorts of, of things that you had to go through in order to be exposed to what the scriptures called porneia. And that's true in, in this culture, at least in American culture. In the pagan culture, you, you know, you, it was everywhere. In one sense, what we're living through now, it's almost everywhere. But I think what happens is that as that restraint has has come off in terms of pornea and kind of giving into these kinds of lusts, as it were. It causes this kind of spiraling effect to the point where you see all these things that have come to pass in the last several years to where all sorts of things that used to be considered almost unspeakable are now the things that are celebrated, and the people that are not celebrating them are the ones that seem very strange and very odd, almost unloving. Um, some things that are so almost kind of so strange to think of like if you told somebody years ago that there would be men competing in women's sports and that the people who are complaining about that are considered hateful and in fact you know who knows what could happen from this particular conversation that you would think, no, that could never happen. I mean, how would anybody ever debate that? How would anybody ever, because we used to actually have pity, we used to have like concern, like let me help you with this thing, and now it's, it's, it's considered hateful to not affirm those sorts of things. And they're all connected to this sense of God created man and women in his image, and so there's Almost a sense is as sin disrupts that it's actually it's actually the reason why all of these things kind of manifest themselves in all the pagan religions that that there's a there's almost a um, an unbridled uh, expression of these kinds of things and and so in especially in the New Testament you see in the Old Testament a focus on idolatry you see uh, the the fact that the people are carried away in idolatry and what Pivot, what the pivot is in the New Testament is kind of, is that idolatry and, uh, and sexual immorality are kind of conjoined. They're actually kind of part of the same thing. The struggle with the flesh is often expressed because when a person's given over to their sinful nature, it always expresses itself in a disruption of the use of, of how the bodies intended to be. And you, you only have to read uh, stories of the way the Roman Empire was and the way slaves were treated, or even the way that uh, men considered um, they, they might have had their wives, but then they had um, uh, other people on the side, or the way that slaves were almost just used as um, vessels for people just abused. And you think, how could that be? But then you see that kind of continuing to unfold in um, in American society where, uh, or in Western culture where you see this kind of unbridled uh, use and abuse of other people and the way that people are just kind of um, hurt through this process, injured, um, you know, all of the the, uh, the medical and all the other things, all the destruction of life that occurs through this. And it's so pervasive that we almost don't see the amount of destruction. Be, and and it, it, it almost seems like you're the strange one. Well, it doesn't seem like that. The people who are concerned about seem like the strange ones who are um, concerned about those sorts of things. And so what Paul is trying to tell us in this scripture verse or in, the, in, these, in, the, in these passages is that, Christians have been set free. Those who were in Christ, remember we are a holy family, so now he's saying live in light of that and don't live as if you're still enslaved to those principles. You are no longer in a state where you are, you are like almost animal in your ways that you have to deal with these things. You need to stop doing the things that are all around you. And when people, were, when, when, when the Thessalonians were walking around, they're looking around, there's a temple to Aphrodite right there. You can go worship and kind of do whatever you want, basically. And that's kind of, it's pervasive in the society. And so they had to, they had to forsake those kinds of things. Now, what I, what I want to make clear here is that I'm kind of on, on the one hand making sure that you understand that these kinds of things are incredibly displeasing to God uh, They because they use and abuse other people created in the image of God. But I also want to make sure I, I you understand that I know that for many, there's a sense in which it almost seems like how do, I, how do I resist this, this temptation? How do I fight this battle? And I almost feel weighed down by the guilt of the fact that I give into this all the time. And so what I want to do on the one hand is affirm that this is not the way that Christians are intended to live because they've been set free from the bonds of the flesh that caused us into all sorts of, you know, uh, license to sin and all these other things. But at the same time, remember what we said earlier, is that when Christ takes a, a sinner, you to himself, you are still struggling with sin within you. And all around you are these images and things that are coming at you. And there's going to be times when we're tempted and we fall into those sin patterns. But you need to understand that when you're struggling against this, this is not some indifferent struggle that you just say, well, if I, if I give in, well, Christ is there to forgive me. It is a very terrible thing that we, that we give into these kinds of temptations. But I also want to make sure you understand that you are not without hope if you have or you do. But part of the, part of the, the obedience that we learn more and more to do is to put those things to death. And, you know, there's a good book by um, John Owen. It's on the mortification of the uh, of sin. And it's one of those things that was very transformative in my own life is to recognize that when we are walking around, we are walking around with this old man, the flesh. We are still sinners. There's a sinful nature within us that we are putting to death. And often what we think as we're, we're, we're navigating life is that um, we we're 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 doing well and like everything's going well and then we, we we don't even need to be on guard right like we're we're fine and then suddenly out of the blue this sin hits us and we're like where did that come from and the reason that happens is because you don't recognize that if you don't know that there's a constant enemy within you that you're battling then then you're totally outflanked. You're totally outmaneuvered every single time. Whereas if you're able to see within yourself this constant battle and you're always on guard, then you're able to continue to put to death even the small things before they become worse problems. And so what I'm trying to say to you is that part of um, sanctification here is that you would be putting things to death. He says, you've got the Holy Spirit within you. You don't have any license to say everything is fine. People out there, people in the world, so to speak, without Christ, they are certainly not without guilt before God for what they do. But in one sense, at least it's understandable that they sin because they're slaves to sin. And part of the gospel is we're trying to save people from their sins by telling them about Christ to save them from that. What the point is, is that you who are in Christ, this is why... Uh, judgment begins in the house of the Lord is because we're in Christ and we have the resources in Christ the Holy Spirit to battle against the flesh and we should not be giving in with license as if we're still without Christ and so we need to be putting to death these kinds of things and he, he even points out here that, especially even within the church, you better not be, you better not be uh, expressing this license towards your brothers and sisters, especially, is part of his warning here. There's kind of a dire warning here. It's like, you know, to, don't be abusing members of the family, so to speak. And so what uh, part of what we've been going through in Sunday school is, is, is what it means to be united to Christ but also the assurance of salvation, because we kind of go back and forth in terms of how we feel about our our sanctification because of this battle with sin. All I'm trying to tell you is that this is a very serious thing. And Paul is Paul is um, Paul says like, if you want to know the will of God for you, it's your sanctification. And the most uh, obvious manifestation of that is how people treat each other. Um, and navigate life, especially in in the realm of how we treat each other, um, treat each other's bodies, and how we view view one another. And we should be growing in holiness so that we're putting off these kinds of things, so that we can treat our sisters as sisters, and grow to the point where we're able to uh, be with. Um, with, with other women and, 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 and the primary thought is our love and affection for them as image bearers of God and not the kinds of things that we're battling with in the flesh constantly. And so we need to be progressing more and more and we need to be helping each other out in that as well and encouraging one another in that that task. And so... Um, I want to make sure you understand that you 're not in this alone, and that part of the part of our role as those who are mature in Christ is to come alongside those who are struggling with that and there are certainly other things that we all need to struggle with anger and all sorts of other things. But in this matter, this is one of the, the most acute things, uh, especially in, 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 in our culture in dealing with these kinds of things, and it has so many repercussions and in, in just the health of the church in general in the fact that um, increasingly uh, I think that we see uh, less and less of less and less marriage and people growing into a state of maturity. And uh, it leaves a, a wake of um, not only men who are not growing to maturity in terms of uh, seeking a wife, but then women who are growing to maturity and don't see a whole lot of men around to... Um, to be, uh, to be pursuing them in a godly way. And so all of these things have repercussions. And so we need to be growing in grace and all these things and be reminded that we have the Holy Spirit within us to, um, to battle these things. So let's continue in, our, in, in this text. So in verses 9 to 12, he says, Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need uh, for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For, for that indeed is what you are doing to all the, the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. So here, this is one of those interesting things where he gives a command, and have you ever um, expressed something to somebody and you want to make sure that you say, hey, I'm not I'm not telling you you're not doing this, but I still want to make sure that you know this. It's, it's sort of like, you know, this, this is important. I'm, I'm not saying that you're not doing this. I'm just saying that, that, that we, need to be, we need to be focusing on this and doing this more and more. And he returns to the topic of brotherly love and the fact that they are, that the, the, the Thessalonians are to be praised in the manifestation of the love that they have for one another and their reputation in Macedonia is uh, throughout Macedonia is very great in terms of the 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 love that they have for one another in concrete actions um, but then he gives uh, then he gives a reminder to them or to essentially uh as an application of that or as a, an additional thing that he wants them to make sure that they're doing is that he kind of wants them to uh, Go out and work quietly with their hands, and just do a good job out there. And some of this, uh, there may be, there may be a consideration that some people maybe were in, in that time frame. They could be, pa- they could have patrons who were not in the church, giving them money just to kind of almost not do anything. Uh, but the point is that Paul's trying to say is that, in part, um, in in the world. Uh, The church is already under assault for many things, and the last thing that we need to have a reputation for is kind of like being lazy or no good, so to speak, in the world. If they're going to say something bad about Christians, let it not be that the fact that those who are created in the image of God are not being industrious. We should be marked by integrity, by hard work, and by the fact that when people say to us, they're like, well, he's a weirdo, but at least he he knows what he's doing and he does a good job. Does that make sense? I mean, I'm not saying you need to have people calling you a weirdo, but they're probably going to think that anyway because you're a Christian if they know anything about that. But even with that, he's just like, live a quiet life. It's not like you have, they, they had to walk around with bumper stickers written in Greek saying, hey, I'm a Christian, or you know what I'm saying? Like on their screensavers in Thessalonica in Greek, you know, with their computers, kids, the notebook computers that they walked around with, the tablets and things like that. They didn't really have that. I'm just saying that to make sure that your, your parents have to do some work to fix your your history now. But um, the, the fact is, is that sometimes we think that we need to walk around in, in this culture and kind of have all these visible symbols to say, I'm a Christian, I'm a Christian. You know, uh, a fish, well, it's not popular anymore. I haven't seen the fish symbol on the car or somebody's got the, or uh, somebody's got the the, the 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 fish symbol with the feet then you show truth eating the the Darwin thing to show no we really got it you know and that sort of thing no we don't we don't need to be kind of um out there uh looking for opportunities for us to have to um you know tell the world how bad uh people are treating christians or to be placarding those sorts of things the what peter says is says um be prepared for those who come to you and ask for the hope that's within you. That should be manifest is that the way that you work is there's something strange about you that that maybe in the midst of all the things that are going on, you're just working with integrity. You're very quiet. You're very um, kind. You're just very, uh, 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 you know, a good businessman, a good worker and that sort of thing. And your conduct is such that people might say, hey, what makes you different? They might, if if. if If, if the expectation was they already knew because it says, I'm a Christian, and if you want to be good like me, then, you know, come talk to me. That's not the, that's not what Peter says. The point is, is that, uh, we're living quiet lives. We're minding our own business. And I know that seems strange because it's almost counterintuitive that we would be minding our own business just doing good work. Because, you know, in one sense, part of, Part of that is that as you're navigating the world, you don't need to be attracting attention to yourself. You don't have to put things on um, uh, uh, public Facebook, all sorts of other things that draw attention to yourself uh, that, call, that, either, um, that, that people are going to use against you and that sort of thing. Just live a quiet life. Do a good job in what you're doing. Have a good reputation. And your conduct will be such that people are going to be attracted to that. But in part also you're going to still be able to be productive because the church still needs people out there being productive because there are going to be people who are going to um, maybe lose their livelihood and there needs to be people around that are, are taking care of one another. And so in part is, is uh, we, we, we walk well among outsiders and have a good reputation. Um, Jerry he is here, and he, he owns the Mathnasium. And, um, you know, uh, uh, I don't think I've ever seen Jerry post anything on his thing that says, I'm a Christian, and that sort of thing. But he's, he runs a good business. He's a very kind person. And everything that you see about Jerry is just like uh, a really, a really kind and uh, generous and uh, a well-run business. Somebody that you want to be around. And I think it's just, it it shows from his character. And I don't, you know, I haven't talked to Jerry. I I don't, I I, I don't hope I don't owe owe him a dollar for bringing up in a, in a, um, in a sermon illustration, but he, uh, he, he runs his business in a way where he, he doesn't have to placard that he's a Christian. And I think that that's kind of a good example of how a person ought to walk among outsiders, so to speak. And we say outsiders not in the sense that we despise them like those people out there. But the fact that they're not in the body of Christ. And so we still need to be mindful of the fact that they don't completely get us. And so the thing that they should get about us is that we work Hard and we work well and we we have integrity, and that's Paul's point here. So he concludes in verses thirteen to eighteen. He says, "But we do not want you to be un uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not um, grieve as others do who have no hope. For since for since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so though." and the dead in Christ will rise first then we who are alive who are left will be caught up together with them in in the clouds to meet the lord in the air and so we will always be with the lord therefore encourage one another with these words you know one of the things that's really interesting as you read through a letter and don't just go into the scriptures as if you're kind of like, um, I don't know, like parachuting into a particular portion of scripture and saying, all I see is this vista around me and it talks about like the coming of the Lord. You understand the context in which Paul is talking about? He's talking about encouraging people with the news about um, the fact that the dead in Christ will rise again or we'll rise first with Christ as he comes, and then we'll meet him in the air. And so then the question is, what is this about? Is this about some sort of millennial debate about, um, you know, like, that Paul in the middle of this conversation about this says, by the way, I just want to kind of take an aside here and tell you about, like, the secret rapture and the fact that this is going to happen and then this is going to happen and be encouraged by this. And you're like thinking, well, that's interesting academically, but how is that encouraging to know that right now in terms of how I live? Why would I be encouraged by this? Why would I be encouraged to know right now in my present circumstances that at some point we could all be doing something and then suddenly all who are in Christ are just going to disappear and then we're going to, you know, be with Christ. And how does that help me live my life? When in fact, what's happening here is that in case you think that, if, in case you've ever heard of this uh, maybe happening in a congregation, that it appears that people have lost those who are dear to them, and they're grieving. And they're, they're uh, grieved over those who have fallen asleep, and it's this is another one of those words that, kids, you can ask what it means, but it's a euphemism. It's a way of saying that they've died. It's, a, it's an easy way of saying that they've died. But it's a terrible thing, and so Paul is trying to make sure that he talks to the congregation and says, I know some of you are in tremendous grief right now because you've lost some loved ones, but I want to remind you, beloved, to not grieve as those who do not not have hope in the world. And the reality is that the the Christians are the only ones that have true hope. Now, there are people that had hope, so to speak, in in a context in terms of what might happen to those who died. But if if the, the hope is not real, then it's just wishful thinking, right? Like, am I going to be in Valhalla? Am I going to be like in the good part of Hades because I was, you know, noble or that sort of thing? There, was, there were ideas of afterlife or ideas of maybe rewards for things, but those aren't real. But the purchase of Christ for us is a reality that we have, that we actually have hope beyond the grave. And what he's trying to remind them of this is that these people who have preceded them in death are going to rise again. And I was reflecting on that today. I was like, I was thinking about it because um, I feel very earthbound a lot, especially when I start to consider coming into, into God's presence. I feel very earthbound. And I think in terms of the things that I see and the things that I experience. And, 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 and to have a loved one die, it feels, it feels final right now in one sense. It feels like it feels so sad, it feels so oppressive to think that I can't be around this person and um and those and and when we've lost someone like that, it feels like. You know, because this is the life we live, and we have to we have to be reminded or our eyes have to be lifted up into the reality that Christ has died and risen again, and it changed our hearts so that we 're really clinging to him and saying, "You know what, Christ died, and he rose again in like manner, all those who are in him will likewise rise, and the promise is that they are now with him, and not only so. But those who have preceded us are going to be the first ones that are risen risen from the grave before we are. And so what he's trying to say is like, right now what we feel is this grief, this separation. But I I want to lift your eyes. I want to lift your eyes up to the reality that I know you know. And I want to remind you of this. That Christ is going to come again. This is what he's focused upon here. Christ is coming again once. And I want to make sure that those who maybe have been grown up in different traditions don't feel offended by what what I'm trying to say. I want to make sure I give you the word of God in a way that's going to encourage you and impact you so that you understand what this is trying to teach us rather than getting into debates about, you know... um, uh, millennial expectations and that sort of thing but the reality is Christ is going to come once to judge the world but he's but as he's coming and I'm not exactly sure how this is going to happen because sometimes when you think about that you think oh yeah I'm going to see him in there but then you think well but if he's over Stafford like where how is anybody else going to see him and Honestly, I don't know. I don't know how it's going to work. I don't know if it's going to just kind of be one of those things where I was even thinking about it today while I was running. I was thinking, is it going to be one of those things where it's going to kind of like he's going to move across the earth and the and, and the dead are going to beat him, and then we're going to we're like whoa, it's coming, and or is it going to be something that maybe reality is going to change? I don't know. But the reality is that there's going to be this trumpet blast and and this. And our great king is going to come back triumphant and he's going to raise those who preceded us, those who came before us, who died. They're going to be raised again. And then we're going to be brought up and we're going to be with them. And we're going to be with them forever. And he says, encourage one another with this news. And that's what it's about, beloved. This is, this is why we're living this is what we're anticipating. Now, God has given us a good earth right now, a good creation that's been, that's been um, marred by the fall, by sin, and so we are, we're struggling in all these things. Even the things that we can be thankful for, there are things that are frustrating by, about them, even the gifts that we have, and we're constantly battling against um, sin and death, or sin, or sin in the flesh, and we're losing loved ones, we're losing the people we love. Our bodies are wearing down. And if we don't if we don't lift our lift our gaze from this and and then then we'll be like the writer in uh, in um, in Ecclesiastes that says this just seems hopeless. I mean, the good people die and, and, and they have nothing, and then the bad people seem to be doing well. But then when we lift our gaze and we see what Christ has provided for us in his death and resurrection and the fact that those who have preceded us in death, we will will see them again and we're gonna live together with him then it gives texture it gives everything to this present existence as we're battling sin and death and realizing it matters right now right now counts forever right now is connected to the fact that I am justified in Christ I've been declared righteous in Christ and that is my that is my the final verdict for me has already been met in Christ I already know that on the last day when Christ when all the the That all are brought before the throne room of Christ. And he judges the sheep and the goats. That I will be counted among the sheep. And I know what the verdict is because I'm in Christ right now. Justification, those who are righteous, it's a its a foretaste of the verdict in Christ. And I know that all of those who I love in Christ will precede me and they'll be with me and we're gonna be, have resurrected bodies and we're gonna live in a new heavens and a new earth. And so right now I can live in light of that reality. I can live in light of that. And so as I'm tempted to to be angry at others, as I'm tempted to, to be selfish, as I'm tempted to um, use others, I can see reality in the light of what everything's about and say, why do I want to continue to live my life in a hopeless state, in an enslaved state? Why do I want to continue to live my life as if the death and resurrection and ascension and future glorification isn't real? Why do I want to live in accordance with a reality without hope? And so, beloved, I just want to encourage you with these words. That we have such a precious inheritance and we often, we often, we, we often live our lives as if now is all there is, as if everything that we're doing is all that matters, as if the things that um, either our jobs or the other things are all that matters, uh, all that matters, or that those 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 hurts that are occurring right now will never go away, or the fact that our grief is final, and we need to be reminded. We need to be reminded though it sometimes feels that way, and our flesh would tempt us to think as if we're still without hope, that no, we have hope. We have Christ. We know the verdict. We know the reality. Don't trust our own our own um, instincts on it, but trust the one who came down from heaven, lived a life, and died and rose again. And so trust the one who returned from the grave and said, I got it. I got victory, and I'm coming again with my angels. The trumpet will sound. Those who are dead, that will uh, those who were dead and preceded you in death, will rise first and will meet, meet you in the air. And everything's going to be awesome in Christ. And so let's be encouraged in that, beloved. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we thank you for this reminder in your gospel of the encouragement that we have in Christ. It gives, it gives so much motivation and rationale for why it is that we're here what what is it that we're doing why are we why are we singing why are we praying why are we confessing why are we wasting sunday mornings why are we getting up early because christ has died and risen again and is ascended on high and one day we will meet him in the air with those who have preceded us and even though our bodies are wearing out even though it seems like the grief now will not dissipate. Even so, we know that one day God will make all things right in Christ, and so we're encouraged by that, and we now sing in unison in praise to you. In Jesus' name, amen.